pray. Father, this is more than just a list of a bunch of names. This is a declaration of who your son is, of where he came from, of what he came to do for us. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Help us to see in your word who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you've been alive and and breathing for the last uh, few years and been watching commercials or been online, you know that ancestry DNA is all the rage, right? Everybody wants to figure out where they came from, where their ancestors are from, and this is this just new huge fad, right? And I'm pretty intrigued by this stuff too. I haven't yet paid the money to, you know, do the test, but went to Christmas, uh, the, the weekend before Christmas at my dad's place, and my sister was there, and she comes over, she's like, hey, check this out. Her husband got her the Ancestry DNA thing, she took the test, uh, and she's got the, like, free trial, and we're, we're in there for, like, hours, just, like, putting in, you know, the father and the mother, and all, we're just going crazy, and it was, like, super exciting. And some of you, uh, some of you who, who know my story a little bit, uh, you know that in the last couple years, I actually found out, so I've, I've known my whole life that my last name wasn't supposed to be Golaxon, and I won't get into all the, the details of the story, some of you know it, but the, my, my last name shouldn't be Golaxon, it actually should be Marty, M-A-R-T-I, and uh, found that out recently, and uh, so we actually found out some information in the last couple years, who my, my great-grandfather is, and, and started tracing back, and and we've traced other other lines too, but that was the one that has kind of been this like, whoa, like a whole new world has kind of opened up. Well, we got all the way back to the mid-1600s in Glarus, Switzerland, which is crazy because I grew up right next to the city, New Glarus, uh, in southern Wisconsin, and uh, made it back 10 generations, and then we're kind of stuck. We don't have any more information, but the name of my 10 generations grandpa is Fridolin, F-R-I-D-O-L-I-N, I don't even know how to pronounce it, Fridolin Marty. And the crazy thing, I, I looked up Glarus, it's, a, it's called a canton, it's an area in, in Switzerland, on Wikipedia, and I'm reading through, and in the 6th century, an Irish monk named Fridolin, right, came and converted this part, this area called Glarus to Christianity, so my 10th generation grandpa is named after this Irish monk who was a missionary to those people when they converted to Christianity, which is like so awesome. There's just all these like cool things I've been learning. But as interesting, right, as exciting, you can probably tell I'm a little excited about that, as exciting as that all is, that's not ultimately what defines me. And when I say that's not ultimately what defines me, I think there's two ways that you could hear that, Right? You could hear the way our culture says that, right? Talking about self-identification. Nobody's going to tell me what to do, or nobody's going to tell me who I am, right? I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the master of my own destiny. That's one way you could hear that. The other way is that I'm defined by someone or something outside of me, but it's still something of my own choosing, right? Kind of like flavor of the day. Like, yeah, maybe this year I'll... I'll be a Buddhist, and maybe next year I'll be a Hindu, and I'll just, like, 
try all these different worldviews to see what sticks, right? That's kind of, it's either you define it yourself or you let something else outside of you define who you are. And I think we all face the same twofold danger with pitfalls on either side. We either look inward to self for value and, and purpose and motivation, or we look outside of ourselves to other things, again, to these peoples or ideas or causes for our value and our purpose and our motivation in life. But I want to propose to you that there is another way. There is a gospel way. There is a narrow path down the middle of those two that while dangerous and hard to walk at times, avoids those two pitfalls that I just mentioned. And we've only taken a few steps on this journey so far in our study of the gospel according to Luke. But they've been some huge and foundational steps. In the first two chapters, we saw the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus foretold. We saw the recording of their births. Saw Jesus being presented in the temple as a young child for his circumcision. Then we saw him again in the temple as a 12-year-old sitting there with the teachers of the law. Last week we saw in chapter 3, John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And we come now to two dramatic and massively important events in the life of Jesus as he is preparing to begin his ministry. We're going to be looking at it this week and next week. That is the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And Luke throws this massive genealogy right in the middle. And we're going to get to that, the reason why. The title of the message this morning is inspired from a line in the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which we're going to sing in a little bit. Verse 2 of that song says, Come behold the wondrous mystery, he the perfect son of man. In his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam. That's the title of the message. See the true and better Adam. Come to save the hellbound man. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. If you're following along in the worship guide there, taking notes, the main idea is there, what... What Luke, I think, wants us to see here is that all of human history comes full circle as the better son of God perfectly obeys the Father and identifies with his people. In other words, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam gave in to temptation, Jesus overcame it. Therefore, we who were once in Adam and identified ourselves with him, now by faith in Jesus, we identify with the one who has identified himself with us. So let's look at that first point. The true and better Adam identifies with his people in his baptism, there in verses 21 and 22. The first question that is often asked regarding Jesus' baptism is, why? Right? Why did Jesus have to get baptized? We know that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, right? It was a baptism that he was calling sinners to come to, to be washed clean, to, to turn from their sin, and to be cleansed. But Jesus was the sinless Son of God. So why on earth did he need to be baptized? Why did he submit himself to Jesus' baptism? 
Now, one of the beauties of having four Gospels is that they don't all say the same thing, right? They don't all explain the same things. Luke doesn't tell us why Jesus got baptized. Matthew gives us some hints. In Matthew chapter 3, the same account of Jesus' baptism, John said to Jesus, John the Baptist said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? To which Jesus responded, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Okay? Jesus says he's coming to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, so well, what does that mean? He tells us, but he doesn't unpack it. And there is no shortage of opinions out there on what this means. But I want to read to you one that I think is is pretty helpful from James Boyce. He put it well. He said, in Jesus' baptism by John, Jesus identified himself with us in our humanity, thereby taking on himself the obligation to fulfill all righteousness so that he might be a perfect savior and substitute for us. This was the beginning of what theologians call Christ's active obedience. His passive obedience was his submitting to death on the cross in our place. So passively, he took the wrath of God, right? He, he died in our place. Then he says his active obedience was his perfect obedience to all God's commandments and decrees. Paul explains this a little bit in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus submitted himself fully to God and to God's law, and he fulfilled God's law perfectly for us. Him being baptized was identifying with his people and saying, I am taking on myself the obligation to fulfill all the demands, all the laws of God. And so we talk about that as Jesus' active obedience, that he didn't just die for us, he lived for us, right? One of my favorite theologians, Shylin, said, you know, he says, I guess you can say that we've been saved by works, right? And then he says, his, right? That's what he's talking about. We are saved by works in a sense that Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus did everything perfectly on our behalf. So we're saved by his perfect life and his perfect obedience. So again, Jesus didn't need to be baptized because of his own sin, but because of ours, which he would take upon himself as our representative. So even here in his baptism, it's a foreshadowing. It's a pointing forward to the cross when he would bear the sins of the world. Okay, let's come back to this idea of identity because we see it here as a major focus in Jesus' baptism. The first thing we see that is unmistakable here is the triune God revealing himself to us. If someone comes and knocks on your door and says, show me the Trinity in the Bible, tons of places you could go, but you take him right here, okay? One God in three persons working together for our good, for our salvation, and for his own glory. The Son of God is standing here. He's, he's baptized. He's praying. The Holy Spirit of God descends from heaven as the heavens are opened. And the Father speaks. And what does he say? You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. So let's break this down. 
first Jesus' identity as the Son of God. I think this is the main emphasis, the main focal point of the whole Bible. The Old Testament pointed us forward to it, and the New Testament shows the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Beginning of Luke, we saw it, chapter 1, verse 35, when Gabriel comes to Mary. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Again, notice this Trinitarian language. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So from the very beginning, the very declaration, when God comes and speaks for the first time in 400 years, when when God breaks through, he says that the Son is going to come. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? What was Peter's response? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This greatest declaration that we can make, the the greatest question that we can answer in our lives, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? The answer is given for us, right? Peter answers for us, and we need to repeat that answer, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the answer. That's the only answer that we can give. The only right answer, right? People try to give other answers. So Jesus is the Son of God that is declared very clearly here in his baptism, just as it was declared in the prediction of his birth. The next thing is the beloved. So in the Greek, it actually says, you are the Son, my, the beloved. So in the English, we just say beloved Son because it's easier. But he's He's declared her to be, to be the son and to be the beloved, okay? It's not saying, it, saying the beloved son is, is a bad translation, but I broke these up because this shows us here that it's not just that he's his son. It shows us the intimate relationship between the father and the son when he says, you are my son, the beloved. We saw this in John chapter 3, verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. When he calls him the beloved here, it's speaking of that intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. So the question for us to consider is, what does Jesus' identification with us mean for us? Because it's not just enough that we read that the Father loves the Son and is well pleased with him, which we're going to get to in a minute. This isn't just enough to... to acknowledge this, right? If this truth doesn't impact our lives, if we don't see the importance of this and let it flow out from us in lives of love and obedience to the Lord, then I think we've missed the point. So what does this look like for us? In 1 John chapter 2, John talks about the need to confess the Son and not deny him. He then says that if the gospel message that we have heard abides in us, if it remains in us, then we will abide in the Son and in the Father. So we are invited into relationship and fellowship, that very intimate relationship and fellowship between the Father and the Son. We are invited into that as his children. Listen then to what John says at the beginning of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, John calls us. It's the same word that was used for Jesus here. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see it? The Son of God came and identified with us in his humanity. He lived the perfect life that we could never live in our place that we might be called children, sons and daughters of God, beloved. But yet there's still this future hope that we will be like him and we will see him as he is. That is, we will be with him. We will have glorified bodies. We will be freed from these earthly bodies that still experience sin and pain and death. It is pointing us forward. It is giving us hope for the future. I talked earlier about identifying, finding our identity in other people. I'll give you just an example here. We maybe try to identify with musicians or athletes. I could go out and buy a $10,000 guitar. I could go on tour and I could follow Eric Clapton, right? He's 74 years old. He's still touring, one of the greatest guitarists of all time, right? I could go, I could, I could videotape him up there on stage. I could go and I could, I could practice for hours and hours. I could learn to play all of his songs. But it doesn't matter because A, I'll never be as good as him, not in a million years. And B, Eric Clapton doesn't care about me, right? Or as a kid, I could have went out and bought the most expensive pairs of Jordans, right? I could have went to Michael Jordan's basketball camp. And it doesn't matter because A, I'm terrible at basketball. Couldn't even make the varsity team, right? And B, Michael Jordan doesn't give a rip about me, right? I can try to identify with him all day long. And he's like, who are you? I don't care about you. Brothers and sisters, the creator of the cosmos humbled himself and took on human flesh and became like one of us and identified with us because he cares about us. He did that not while we were seeking him, right? Not while we were following him around, not while we were paying money to to go after him and be like him. But when we were in dead set rebellion against him, he was on a rescue mission from the Father to save us. And that is what pleased the Father. Our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 42 started off, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's that same word that's used here for pleased. God is talking here about Jesus in Isaiah 42, his servant, his chosen one, in whom his soul delights. And then he says, I have put my spirit upon him. Notice the relationship to Jesus' baptism. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. How will he do that? Right? There's this... There's this desire for justice, right? There's this desire for righteousness in all of us. Like when we see injustice, there should be something that wells up within us. In all of human history, there's been this desire, right, for the perfect government, for the perfect leader. Who's going to come? Who's finally going to come and lead in righteousness and justice? Who's going to do away with the injustices that we see in our society? And we can look at the train wreck of human history and say, nobody, right? Nobody's going to do it. Thousands, millions have tried, and they've all failed. God promises that 
One will come who will bring forth justice to the nations. And it's the one, his chosen one, in whom his soul delights. The chosen servant, the spirit anointed one, who Isaiah foretold. He is and always has been the one in whom the Father delights. Paul tells us in Colossians 1.9 that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So as we transition to our next section here, into this long genealogy, keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes in the one in whom the Father is well pleased. Luke placed this genealogy here for a reason. It may be the thing that you come to in your Bible reading and you roll your eyes at and you just skip through all the names. But let's, let's slow down a little bit and let's pause and let's see why he did this. Our second point is the true and better Adam identifies with his people in his human descent. I'm going to spare you and I'm not going to read back through all of this again. But if you came here this morning hoping that uh, I was going to give you all the answers about all the differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, um, and that I would solve all of the scholarly debates, I'm sorry to disappoint you, um, but I'm not going to do that. There's plenty of material out there if you want to go read till you're zonked out. Um, It's interesting, but I'll just highlight a couple differences. Uh, if If you've been like asking this question, I mean, I I learned a ton this week, uh, things I didn't know about this. I've always kind of been curious about it, but never really dug into it. So if you're you're taking notes and you're curious, you can jot these things down. Again, there's there's some debate on on some of these things. Some of them are just pretty clear. But the first one, which is not really any debate about, Matthew's genealogy is a descending genealogy. Starts with the father, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so it goes from the father down to the son. It starts with Abraham, and it ends with Jesus. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, so he's trying to trace Jesus' lineage back to Abraham and to show how Jesus is the promised Messiah. Okay, Luke's genealogy is ascending. It starts from the son and works its way up to the father. So so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. So it starts with Jesus, and then it ends Uh, ultimately, humanly, with Adam. Now, why did Luke do this? Again, Matthew, we said, was writing to a Jewish audience. Luke, as we're going to see as we continue to go through Luke, Luke is writing to more of a a universal audience. He's including the Gentiles in his audience. So he's trying to show how Jesus is descended all the way from Adam, how he is the representative of all mankind. In Luke, there are 77 names listed. There are seven groups of 11 and we get to a couple places in here as we were going through that. You probably recognize some of the names. Some of them are also in Matthew's genealogy. There's a whole bunch of names that we just have no idea who these people even were. Uh, so that's one, one thing that's different. In Matthew, uh, Matthew has 42 names, and it's the 14, 42 generations broken up into three sets of 14. And he kind of explains um, historically what, the, what events those relate to. And then probably what, the, what is the most debated thing is uh, which, which lineage is, are these genealogies talking about? Is it Matthew's uh, descendants or is it, or is it Joseph's descendants or is it Mary's descendants? Um, most scholars that I probably would align myself with would say that um, Matthew is 
the line of Joseph. Matthew is giving Jesus' line through Joseph. Luke is giving uh, the Jesus' lineage through Mary. Um, but I think, I think if Luke, if Luke, no, I won't say if, Luke, I'm assuming, knew what he was writing. He knew which lineage it was. But he doesn't tell us. And I think he doesn't tell us because he's not going to get us off track into, again, like talking about genealogies and all these different things. That's not the point of the genealogy. The point isn't to, like, make us have all the answers and figure out who are all these people that were listed in the Old Testament. What is the point? What is the point of Luke's genealogy here? Talked about this a couple weeks ago. Luke frames this whole section here very carefully, and we can look for clues in the text. In chapter 2, we saw two inclusios, or, or bookends. It's a, it's a grammatical device to, to begin a section with a word or an idea, and then to end that section with the same idea. So just think of it as, as bookends. We saw in chapter 2, Jesus' circumcision and then Mary's purification. They were both according to the law of the Lord. So we saw kind of that whole section bookended with that. Then we saw... Jesus in the temple as a 12-year-old in the beginning, right before that section, it says that the favor of God was upon him. The end of that section that talks about the, that he had favor with God and man. So Luke is kind of doing this bookend thing, right? Here, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God from heaven in verse 22 in his baptism. And then at the very end of the genealogy, we have his true identity again, the Son of God. So you see what Luke is doing here? Why he's placing the genealogy here and how he's bookending it? But this is not just a linguistic boundary marker. It's not just the words, the Son of God. I think this is a theological one as well. He's showing us here the true and better Adam right before the temptation story. I don't want to steal too much of James's thunder for next week. But this compare and contrast to Adam is going to lead us right into the temptation, right? Again, Luke wants us to see the main idea here, that all of human history comes full circle as the better son of God perfectly obeys the Father and identifies with his people. Although Luke doesn't explicitly state it here, the failure of Adam should jump off the page at us. And though, as we look through this list, there are some heroes of the faith in that list, Noah and Abraham and David. These are also men who sinned greatly against the Lord, who needed a Savior. I already used this phrase earlier. It's kind of popular to talk about people making a train wreck of their lives. I I use that phrase a lot. And as I was thinking of this, of, of all of these men who made train wrecks of their lives, Wanted just to picture a train, right? 77 cars filled with wives and children and, and many descendants, filled with people whose lives are affected by the actions of the representative of their family. And because of the sin of Adam, this train just goes off the tracks, right? And these cars are flying everywhere, and people are flying everywhere, and these, these cars are just being destroyed. Lives are derailed. If you're reading through the Bible in any kind of Bible in a year plan that you just started in January, you're probably in the book of Genesis. You're probably somewhere around 19 to 20 chapters in, right? 
just go read the book of Genesis. Like, you don't have to get very far before you just see train wreck after train. I mean, just, I just read this morning. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just craziness, right? The things that people are doing and the way it impacts the lives of others. But the good news of the gospel, the hope that shines brightly in the midst of the train wreck of human history is that the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he succeeded where the first Adam failed. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He identified with us, his people. So the question for us, brothers and sisters, will we look to him? Will we believe in him? Will we trust in him? Will we see the true and better Adam Come to save the hellbound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law. In him we stand. Are you standing in him today? The one who fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf. Are you standing firm in him? That's the question that we need to wrestle with as we prepare to come to the table this morning. Have you looked to Christ, the true and better Adam? Have you looked away from yourself? Have you looked away from your hope in other things and looked on that straight and narrow path to the only one who walked that path perfectly? The only one who could walk that path perfectly as the perfect son of God. If your trust is in him, if your hope is in him, then we welcome you to come to the table to come, to eat, to drink, to celebrate, to remember what he has done, to remember his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. If you are someone who, you don't have to be a member of Livingstone Church, we ask that you would be a Christian who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church. If that is you, you're invited to come forward. If you're not there yet, if you say, I'm not quite sure about this whole Jesus thing and I, I don't yet trust him, As my Savior and Lord, we would ask that you would remain in your seat and not take the elements. Uh, If those who are serving could come down at this time. We'll come down in our sections as we normally do. Take the elements, return to our seats, and we will all partake together. We have uh, red wine on one side, white grape juice on the other side. Uh, There are gluten-free crackers. And for those uh, kids who are not partaking, uh, we will pray for them. So you can come down whenever you're ready.